0: Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 402. Before we begin, this episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. It has been so long, and for that I truly apologize. It It has been several trying months all in a row, but things are on the upswing, and I am back with you, and that is all really good. As always, at the start of a new book, we have some new listeners, so hello new listeners, and welcome to the show. So this week is a little bit different from a normal show, because today we need to go over some important history and some background about our author. Next week, we will be back into our normal routine, and we'll go from there. But today's episode is titled, Before We Begin for a reason. And that is that the Count of Monte Cristo, although it seems like it should be a very simple adventure story, it is so much more than that. And a lot of French history is, it's a, as in any, any book written anywhere, there's an assumption that you know a lot of information about, at least in this case, the recent past. And as an american of course <laughs> as an american i don't know that there are any countries outside of america no it's not that bad y- yes it is but so in the states i know about the french revolution of course i know about napoleon sort of and then uh, nothing happens until world war 1 right it's just <laughs> it's just a void that's the problem is outside of the country of origin of this fantastic book I don't know how much French history you know. And I have a sneaking suspicion that as much research as I do, there are still going to be things that I miss. So, do not forget that we have a listener call-in line. Area code, country code, 1206 350 1642 If you need to correct me, call that number and leave a message. Now, if you are outside of the United States, you can go to the website, and on the right-hand side, you'll see a little tab. It's a little black and white tab that says send voicemail. And the only problem with that is that there's only 90 seconds of recording time on that. Um, In order to get more recording time, I would have to pay a load of money, which I can't do right now. So that you would have to kind of piece together in 90-second chunks. Or, probably even better, is to record an audio response. If you have a a laptop, it has a microphone in it, just by nature of it being a laptop. If you have a Mac, you can use GarageBand. If you have not a Mac, (laughs) you can use the free program Audacity and just record your comments and listen back to them, make sure they sound how you want, and then you can email them to me, or if you have a Dropbox, you can share them with me. And that way I can clear up any errors that I make in my French history. And certainly I know it's going to happen, my French pronunciation. I did take a year of French, but that doesn't really do much for one when one is so very many years away from one's class in high school. So forgive me for my mispronunciations and feel free to help me correct them. Originally, I thought I would talk today... And start with Alexandre Dumas, because he is such an interesting man himself. And I even tried recording pieces on Dumas. But then I had a really interesting conversation with the husband of one of our listeners. Last year, when we went on the craftlit, fantastic tour to Manchester and the Lake District and York. One of the women on the trip, Liz. Again, craft-lit people being craft-lit people, it is never a surprise how fabulous you are when I finally get a chance to meet you. And her husband is actually doing this really cool thing. He's retired now, but he is taking classes in French literature, reading the literature in French. And so I was able to hop onto Skype with him and have a bit of a discussion, and I recorded it, and there are a few things that I wanted to play for you from our conversation. So here are a couple of clips, just to kind of give you a starting point for our discussion today. So here is Roger
1: James. And then I guess, as I started reading the novels in French, um, I understood that... (laughs) How do I, I don't know how to put it. The language the language that you expect is not the language you get in the novels. The words are different. And if you look very closely at them, then the subtlety of them gets lost in translation because there's no real English equivalent. You know? So there's a lot. Um, and then you get to know, I guess if you read something like Madame Bovary, you get to know Flaubert. You can't avoid that. And you... You, know, you start digging into the kind of guy he was and why he wrote this, and you become he becomes much more of a sympathy, sympathetic character, and you want to know more about him. And you, and you it, it sort of moves like that. First of all, for me, it was the start. That, I mean, Flabo was the first to actually understand that. Women kept, could behave in that way. Nobody else dared. To, none of the English novelists were writing about that kind of stuff. And he, I believe that he did it because, I mean, his sexuality is part of it. I think because he's he's obviously bi, and he's he's trying to his his relationship with women is much closer. It's the sort of relationship a gay man will have with women, you know. It's much more objective, and at the same time, it's much more perceptive. And he's doing that with Emma Bovary. He's Mm. he's using her in a way uh, to to make a big statement about things. And of course, he was prosecuted. Bovary was banned for about two years after publication. And because women didn't behave like this, you know, it was wasn't part. And I I presumably exactly the same would have happened in the UK. Because you had a Victoria ruling everything. And even in the US, I mean, presumably. So that was that was the immediate thing. And and I think the the other thing is that is it's a rural novel. It's so it's unusual. Most of British English literature of the nineteenth century is is city based. It's based in the, the, the economic revolution, the industrial revolution. There wasn't one in France. There was no industrial revolution. It was they were busy fighting battles and things all the time. There was very little. I mean, there was a bit of coal mining in the north. No, but it's, it's... And people were downtrodden. But, I mean, it was... I think France in the 19th century was dominated by these repetitive wars. Mm-hmm. And the idea of friendship, which is always going to be... Um, Invaded, and he he was actually saying something about the bourgeoisie that nobody had said. And the other thing about so Roger um, had
0: just recently finished. I'm sure you could tell reading Flaubert. He read Madame Bovary and was affected by this book. And I I said to him at one point during our, our conversation that one of the things that I could tell about Dumas, even in the Victorian translation that I was listening to was that there are these these moments in the book. And the the book is in many ways taken up with being an adventure tale. And there's more that we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But it's it's an adventure tale, it's a revenge story, it's a redemption story, it's, you know, it's a lot of really exciting adventure stuff all smashed into one. And I really did hesitate before choosing The Count of Monte Cristo as our next book because I thought, well, I mean, my whole point of doing Craftlet is to take books that you either haven't read before or you've read and loved or you read and you hated or if you read them on your own if you read these books on your own you would say oh well that was a nice book but you wouldn't get what the author was trying to give you necessarily because we're so removed from so many of these texts uh, historically and in our lifestyles and in in like we said just knowledge of history I always felt when I was teaching high school that my my students should have access to how the Garcia girls lost their accent or monster or speak, but my high school students didn't need me in order to read those books. Access, yes, but help understanding them, no, not remotely. And I kind of worried that, Dumas, you know, Three Musketeers guy and Man in the Iron Mask and oh, how difficult could it be? Well, the Count of Monte Cristo is fascinating. And even in, back to the beginning of what I was going to say, even in the Victorian translation that I was listening to, there would come moments of beautiful writing or shocking revelation. He has characters in this book do and say things I wouldn't have expected from 1890, much less 1840. This is, this is a good 20-plus years before Wilkie Collins writes A Woman in White. And A Woman in White was pretty radical for us at the time as well. Well, push yourself 20 years earlier, move to a different country, and suddenly you're getting Marion Holcomb from The Woman in White, Fabulous ninja babe that she was, does not come close to pushing the envelope that Dumas characters do, female characters. So as you can imagine, I'm really excited about that, and that's where I found this really interesting connection with Flaubert and Madame Bovary and how uh, Flaubert, as a as a gay man at the time, that put him in the category of outsider and. Outsider, as we know from all of the other books we've read, whether we're talking about Oscar Wilde or women writers or Bram Stoker, an Irishman in London, the outsiders are always, it seems, the ones who are able to really look at the larger world, at society, and identify places of friction or tension you know the the stuff on the margins the stuff where uh, interesting things are happening it's it's the romantics it's it's shelley and keats and byron at the spanish steps in rome and they're on the edge of everything they're watching it and observing and when a poet does that or a really really good writer or artist or painter or musician when somebody who has that eye and that ability to communicate in an artistic way when they're looking at this stuff, we get the benefit of this insight that they've achieved partly by being an outsider. Dumas is very much an outsider, even though he was incredibly popular. He was very mainstream. He actually wrote more plays than anything else. He was you know, a larger-than-life character. I tend to think of him as he out dickens Dickens 20 years before Dickens started. And a lot of the reason that he was able to do this, and Flaubert, and Zola, and Maupassant, a lot of the reason that these people were able to do what they did when they did it, is very, very specifically because they were in France. And as as Rob said when we were discussing this, when we talk about uh, writers in France, almost always we are talking about writers in Paris. Dumas, again, as an outsider, does something shocking with the beginning of The Count of Monte Cristo. Actually, not just the beginning of The Count of Monte Cristo, but off and on throughout the book. He doesn't start in Paris, and his narrative does not always stay in Paris. In fact, there are a couple of instances where I'm going to have to post maps for you, kind of like what we did with Dracula, because it just it really helps to see what this part of the Mediterranean looked like. And so, from time to time, I'm going to have to say, "Okay, there's a map on the show notes. You need to go look." Because here, one of those things to go check out before we get too far into the book is go and look, go on Google Earth or, or Google Maps, and just look at the distance between Marseille and. Paris. Roger mentioned it once while we were talking, but it bears repeating several times. The French Revolution and the impact of the French Revolution cannot be understated when it comes to Dumas. And this is for several reasons. One is that the French Revolution is a lot more complicated than I ever thought it was in the classes that I'd taken. And two... The French Revolution ending with the Declaration of the Rights of Man, that movement from the Declaration of Rights of Man into Napoleon. as far as what I've been able to pick up in my research, but also according to what Roger said, it infuses everything, which isn't that big a surprise, right? because if if over two hundred years you go from Louis the Sun King I- equating himself with God in in no uncertain terms, and within what less than a couple of hundred years you move from that to the Declaration of the Rights of Men, that's going to have a pretty massive impact on you. And the the values that the society came to hold dear really had had been hard won and were by that point very deeply rooted. And there's a lot to say about Napoleon. <laughs> He's... I don't feel like I'm ever going to stop learning new things about Napoleon, but for our purposes, one of the things to remember about Napoleon is that he, he tended to be pretty good to the outsiders. He was good for the Jews, and for people like Dumas, who was biracial, Napoleon would have been really quite, quite important. Along with the fact that Dumas' father fought for Napoleon became the highest-ranking black officer in, well, in Europe, the, f- the first and the highest, and served with distinction for Napoleon for, for years. And his his father's history is interesting as well. And here's where it gets really complicated about Dumas. Everybody seems to be named Alexandre Dumas. Alexandre Dumas, who we think of, his father was named Alexandre Dumas, and his son was named Alexandre Dumas. But, just to make it really complicated, our Alexandre Dumas was named or called Alexandre Dumas Père, Father, and his son was called Alexandre Dumas Fille, Son. And yet Alexandre Dumas' dad, doesn't get, you know, it's not like Alexandre Dumas, the first and second and third. I guess, I guess nobody wanted to talk about Alexandre Dumas' father or grandfather. And those two men are part of why I decided to keep this episode separate from our first chapter, chapters. Because Dumas' grandfather, also a military man, gentleman, came from a good family, Nobility. He shipped out to the West Indies, specifically Saint Domingue, which is now Haiti. And grandfather, whose name was Alexandre Antoine Davy de la Palatia, he was a general commissionaire in the artillery in that colony, and he, living in Haiti, wound up having children with Marie. Sesset Dumas. It is not lost on me that the children who we are focused on, Thomas Alexandre, father of Alexandre Dumas, didn't take their father's name. They took their mother's name. Now it's evidently it's not known whether she was Creole or whether she had actually come from Africa. And I I am continuing to try and find some information about her. Uh, Obviously, finding information about women from this time is often very difficult, and it's only going to be more difficult because she was a slave. But something interesting was going on there beyond having children. And a grandfather of Alexandre Dumas was the Marquis Alexandre-Antoine Davy de la Politia. He never seems to have denied his children that he had with Marisa Set. So that's cool. Uh, they're considered his natural-born children. Remember back in Sense and Sensibility, we had that whole natural-born child. So he has these natural-born, mixed-race children. And instead of kind of shunting them off to the side or ignoring them, he he gets them educated and gets them set up really rather well in the military. And Alexandre Dumas' dad is great. He does really, really well. And by the time he was 31, was a general, which is pretty pretty impressive. Now, he, uh, father to Alexandre Dumas, was born in 1762. So by the time he's 31... It's 1793, which is a fairly interesting time in French history. If, if you think back, the French Revolution starts in earnest in 1789. So the American Revolution is 1776-ish, around that You know, it expands before that and after that. French Revolution has been watching what was going on in the States. In the soon-to-be states. And of course, we have Ben Franklin over there and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Thomas Paine. So there's a constant flow of, of writing back and forth between these two countries. And the uh, effects of the Enlightenment on political discussion and discourse and the appalling conditions that people had been living under for so long in France finally culminates with the storming of the Bastille which is the, beginning, the official beginning of the French Revolution. 1793, when Alexandre Dumas' father becomes the General-in-Chief of the French Army of the Alps, that happens to be the same year that Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette are guillotined. All right? <laughs> Had to be an interesting time to be in the military. The reign of terror ends in 94, In 99, Napoleon enters Paris and is crowned First Consul, and in 1804, he becomes Emperor Napoleon I. Napoleon's defeat in Russia is 1812, Waterloo in 1815, and in 1814, Napoleon abdicates and is exiled to the island of Elba, which is hugely important for the Count of Monte Cristo for the book, The Count of Monte Cristo. And then from 1814 to 1824, you have the reign of Louis Eighteenth. However, that is not the end of Napoleon. Yes, he goes to Elba. Yes, he's exiled. However, in 1815, so a year later, Napoleon comes back to Paris, and he is in charge, I'm putting in quotation marks, in charge for 100 days. It's called The Hundred Days. That leads up to Waterloo, and at that point, Napoleon is <laughs> deported. He is taken away to St. Helena, which is an island off the coast of Africa. And then Louis XVIII finishes out his time. Then you get Charles X from 1824 to 1830. From 1830 to 1848, you have Louis-Philippe. In 1848, uh, King Louis-Philippe is replaced by Louis-Napoleon, who is the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. And Louis-Napoleon is proclaimed the president of the Second Republic. So now we've got our Second Republic. And from 1852 to 1870, uh, Louis-Napoleon takes the title of Napoleon Third in the Second Empire. <laughs> All right, so we go from Republic to Empire again. 1870 to 1871 is the Franco-Prussian War. This ends, they lose alsace lorraine and that's the end of the Second Empire. Then you get the Third Republic, and that lasts until 1940. 1877 is the moment when Republicans win the general election, and that is the end of the monarchy. So, 1877. Now, it's easy to kind of throw this stuff out as a timeline. The implications of all of this are pretty vast. The French Revolution and the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which we will talk about more in later episodes, that's one thing. But the back-and-forthness of Napoleon's time is absolutely key to understanding the beginning of the Count of Monte Cristo. When Napoleon is in power, being a royalist was probably not a bad idea, although the chances of you being in trouble for it were fairly slight. But there's another layer to all of this, and this is something that I mentioned for the uh, premium audio members You heard me talk about this a little bit with Luigi Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author, that there is a a moment of crossover between Dumas and this story and Pirandello and Six Characters in Search of an Author and Pirandello's fascism, uh, his his alliance with the fascist party. And that is that Italy had been ruled by an outside government, Uh, actually not Italy, the different... States that made up Italy, these different regions, many of them were being controlled by different governments. And the Bourbon family from France was one of those groups that was affecting Italy. So the House of Bourbon was extraordinary. The history and the span, both in time and location, of the influence that this family had is ex- just incredible. But Henry IV, Henri Fourth, not the British Henry Fourth, Henri Fourth became the first Bourbon king of France in 1589. Once you hit the French Revolution, the Bourbons kind of go in and out, but the Bourbon family spread out, and one branch of it ruled Naples from 1734 until 1806. This is the part that directly affects our story, because Alexandre Dumas' dad... Who was fighting for the the country, and then Napoleon? He he winds up having an argument with Napoleon in Egypt. There's a an Egyptian campaign, so they have they have this break, and he kind of has to hot foot it out of Egypt. He gets into a boat that he knows is not in great shape. He he gets as far as Naples, and he he has to put down in in Naples. Well, Naples is being run by the Bourbon family. He. Is coming from Napoleon. He gets busted and he gets put into prison, and he is he's kept there in prison in a dungeon for two years. So he gets out in 1801. He comes home. His health is never the same. But he and his wife have Alexandre, and uh, Alexandre Dumas has a, a younger sister as well. Now, Alexandre Dumas' dad, whose health was compromised by his time in the dungeon, dies in 1806, leaving his wife with two children and no form of income. He has no military pension because he split from Napoleon. So Dumas' mother, Marie-Louise, she couldn't do much for her children. She couldn't get him an official education. However, young Dumas, who was four when his father died, could read and he could write, and he read everything he could get his hands onto, and he taught himself Spanish. And because of his father's excellent reputation, and because of his aristocratic rank from his his father's side, the children actually did okay. There were friends and uh, extended family members who were willing to help. And so when Dumas was 20 years old, he moved to Paris, and he got a job at the Palais Royal, working for Louis-Philippe, the Duke of Orléans. At this point, he starts writing articles for magazines and plays for the theater and keeps his grandmother's name, Dumas, just like his dad had done. By the time he's 27 years old, his plays are getting really good notices. He's very successful. And in 1830, Dumas was part of the revolution that got rid of Charles X and replaced him with Louis-Philippe, the Duke of Orleans, who was his boss. And Louis-Philippe is called the Citizen King for the next five or so years france is once again kind of unstable politically there are riots and poor people in the city again who are hungry and trying to find a way to make life work and slowly that all settles down and the country starts to industrialize as things start to get better censorship rules that were put in place in uh, as a way to try and keep keep things down uh, those were relaxed, and that was key for Dumas. He continued writing plays, but he also switched to novels, and he wrote well. Honestly, for for those of you who are familiar with James Patterson, Dumas was the James Patterson of his day. He had, if not a, a team, he had one other writer who he worked with all the time, and we'll talk about him in a moment. And often what would happen is uh, his his partner would bring in story ideas, you know, snippets of newspaper and and things that he'd heard about, and he and Dumas would talk about it. And then Dumas would take it and craft it into this I- I- extraordinary story with, you know, dialogue and description and everything. And some people say, well, that's cheating, because Dumas didn't come up with it all on his own. I would posit that most most writers spend some time workshopping stuff, getting people's reactions, talking about story ideas, solving problems by talking through it. Uh, This seems to have been a, a step beyond that. But at the same time, there's no question that what his partner wrote and what Dumas wrote were two very different styles and very different kinds of talent. Now, Dumas wrote for magazines the same way that Charles Dickens did, but he went through money also the same way that Charles Dickens did. And and that meant that sometimes to make ends meet, he had to take on ridiculous writing assignments. Like, at one point he was writing a chapter a day for a daily newspaper. I don't know how, but he did. I hope they were short chapters. Uh, he also did the, the weekly and the monthlies. And The Count of Monte Cristo was one of the weeklies. And that is why you will notice it's very clear when you're listening to it, very much like Bleak House and and other Dickens novels that were written similarly, the cliffhanger thing, but also the self-contained story. So each chapter really is a chapter of a larger story, but it's usually focused on just one of the plots or subplots has a rather limited scope as far as uh, travel and complications, and usually ends with a cliffhanger or a hint of something else that's to come, which is one of the things that makes it so, so good. This structure also allowed Dumas to bring into his stories things that were au courant, very popular at the time when he was writing. So if... Uh, Romeo and Juliet, if love stories like, like that, Pyramus and Thisbe, if those were popular at the time, he could work uh, a pair of star-crossed lovers into The Count of Monte Cristo. If uh, some some particularly vile crime happened in real life at the time, he could work that crime into a subplot of The Count of Monte Cristo. And this is what happened. So part of the reason why you have 117 chapters is because it was a really interesting time, and he had a lot to add. And along with the bringing reality into the fiction, The Count of Monte Cristo is, in fact, based on a true story. At one point, his collaborator, who we mentioned before, Auguste Maquette, he's the most famous of all of the people that uh, Dumas worked with, but not by By no means the only one. He brought in a snippet of a news story to Dumas about a guy who had been falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, came back out of prison, and proceeded to hunt down and kill the people responsible for his imprisonment. There are several other places where the Count of Monte Cristo and that particular true life story overlap. However, I think by the time we get into this book, you will agree with me that. Uh, summing Monte Cristo up like it was that story just being told in a fictional fashion is really misunderstanding the book and doing an enormous disservice to Dumas' gift as a preeminent writer of his day. Dumas also, as a, a man of mixed race origin, is he has that outsider thing going for him, but he he also didn't shy away from it. There are characters in the Count of Monte Cristo, there are two women who are clearly lesbians, and I still stand in amazement because they are not there to be made fun of, they are not there to be punished, they are not there really to make any particular point, political or otherwise. They are simply characters in the story. And I... As I was reading this, I kept thinking, if you had a feather in your hand, you could have knocked me over with it, because I never, ever would have expected that from a book that was written this long ago. Beyond that, of course, we have the issue of race. And certainly when I was growing up, nobody ever, ever mentioned that Alexandre Dumas was of mixed-race origin. And I mean, slavery hadn't been legal in... France, in Paris, sorry, hadn't been legal in Paris since the 1300s. So when Dumas' father came back to join the military, when he was brought back by his dad to Paris and joined the military, he was much, much safer in France than he would have been in lots of other places on the planet. But that doesn't mean, of course, that racism didn't exist. And while Dumas doesn't deal with racism directly, there is stuff that we are going to get to that's, I think, very cleverly disguised pokes at people who are racist. There were books that he wrote that didn't disguise it quite so much. And I found, the only place I found this was on Wikipedia, and I'm so glad somebody posted it. And I'm just going to read it straight off the page for you. Despite Dumas' aristocratic background and personal successes, he had to deal with discrimination related to his mixed-race ancestry. In 1843, he wrote a short novel, Georges, that addressed some of the issues of race and the effects of colonialism. His response to a man who insulted him about his African ancestry has become famous. And this, I believe, is actually not Dumas speaking as Dumas, but Dumas speaking as a character in Georges. The quote is My father was a mulatto, my grandfather was a Negro, and my great-grandfather a monkey. You see, sir, my family starts where yours ends. I love that. <laughs> I love that. There are there are people who can come up with singers and Dumas appears to have been one of them and of course that line sounds even better in French, which I will not try and butcher for you but I will put it on the show notes so that you can see it both in English and in French but that element of translation that raises a problem for us listening to the audiobook here the first thing isn't a problem we found a reader an excellent reader he had just posted *Count of Monte Cristo* on LibriVox. I was despairing; we lost John last year, and and then I went through several other <sighs> readers, and it it was very difficult. And then stumbled upon David Clark, who is in Texas. He is going to be reading for us. His wife is a knitter. How awesome is that? And of course, because it is LibriVox, and because *Kraftlet* is *Kraftlet*, and we all have to stick to public domain works. It means we have to use one of the anonymous Victorian translations. Well, there is a new translation that's out by a woman named Robin Buss. Her translation draws on both the original French and several other translations. And one of the points that she made was when Dumas wrote this in 1844, 1845, French literature was just fine with it being this kind of wide-ranging, in several parts beautifully written, tale of love and revenge and redemption and crime and vindication and history and bias and racism and sexism and politics. I mean, you can just keep going. Well, with 117 chapters, you can probably fit a lot in. Well, when this book, The Count of Monte Cristo, is first translated, one of the things that happens is the translator seems to think, oh, well, really, all I'm translating here is an adventure story. So anything that didn't have to do with the adventure story, it didn't necessarily get left out. Sometimes it did but it didn't necessarily get left out. It just didn't get a whole lot of attention. And so there are uh, passages and lines and resonances that get lost in the translation that we are reading. And these are things that Robin Buss tried very hard to bring back to her translation. This includes changes in uh, chapter numbering and beginnings and ends of chapters, and in some cases, the order that things happen in. So if you are interested, the Robin Bus translation, all four inches of it, <laughs> are available on Amazon, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. And of course, any Amazon links that you see on the Craft show notes, those are affiliate links, and they do help out the show when you start your shopping from a link at Craftlit. But if you want to read along, there are going to be those moments where the chapters don't line up exactly right and they don't, they don't perfectly match. At the same time, I have a copy of The Robin Bus here, and there will be times where I will read or I will have someone read uh, passages from it to you so that you can see what Dumas was really getting at, because he he really wasn't a hack writer And this really isn't just an adventure story. I mean, it has all of that, but there's more to it than that. So as I've said before, the difficulties of using Victorian translations are sometimes bigger bigger difficulties than others. But it's what we've got, and it's what we're working with, and we have David Clark reading for us, and thank goodness. And for those of you in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, David Clark runs um, a couple of coffee roaster, coffee places. I've put a link to his places on the show notes so you can go and take a look. If you are there, walk in, say hi, tell him that you are a Craftlet listener, and he will be so blown away. It'll be awesome. So that was kind of a wide-ranging history of this particular time period in France that affects our book and Dumas and Dumas' life, And we will be touching back on all of this as we continue through the book. Those of you who are premium audio members, we're going to be starting The Miller's Tale. And after that, we will be going to Three Men in a Boat to say nothing of the dog. And I have a very special, exciting announcement for you on that front next week. If you are interested in premium audio... You can find out more by clicking the Premium Audio button in the right-hand sidebar at craftlit.com, and you can access that audio both on the Craftlit app and at patreon.com. Signing up to support the show at Patreon is a great thing to do. You do not have to pledge a dollar. You can put zero in as the amount, although, of course, I am incredibly grateful if you do support the show financially. But at Patreon.com, you get little goodies on the side for your support, as well as an opportunity to access the premium audio. All you have to do is sign up for $5 or more a month as your pledge, and access to the audio appears for you then. All right, that's it for me for this week. Dumas, and a (laughs) very small smattering of the beginning of French history. Done. Next week, the beginning of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. So excited to be doing this one. More new changes and exciting things happening next week as well. And until then, have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlitlipsoncom slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at Craftlit.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.